have um, each of you taken a copy of the handout? Good. Okay, since this is the, the first of the uh, seminars I'll be giving over the next week or so, I think we're going to have about six uh, sessions, I'd like to start by outlining the approach I'm going to take. Let's uh, imagine to ourselves a picture of Buddhism, Buddhism being a tradition that is not only very old, it goes back two and a half thousand years, but most of the forms that we are familiar with today, in fact, don't really date back further than about the 5th century AD, in other words, about a thousand years after the Buddha, the Theravada tradition, which is one that you'll be familiar with if you come to Vipassana centers, to Spirit Rock and elsewhere. The Zen tradition, which began in China about the same time as the Theravada tradition began in Ceylon. And the Tibetan traditions that began a little bit later in about the 8th century AD. And when we say Buddhism, I think very often what will spring to mind is one of these uh, traditions or schools. <clears throat> and again, we're also familiar that when you pick apart Theravada or Zen or Tibetan Buddhism, you'll find there's a multiplicity of approaches and schools and teachers and styles of meditation that characterize each one. And also, there's more to it than that. In fact, that sampling, Theravada, Tibetan Zen, is one that is familiar in the sort of Buddhist culture of which Spirit Rock and the Vipassana tradition are very much a part. But in some ways, that's ignoring movements that in some ways are, are, are larger but less known in the West particularly <clears throat> the Pure Land tradition, which is probably the dominant form of Buddhism in East Asia, the Nichiren traditions, which are very widespread and um, <clears throat> very um, powerful, in fact, in modern Japan, going back to about the 14th centuries. So Buddhism, as we are encountering it, is actually something relatively recent. None of these schools start with, uh, before a thousand years after the Buddha. Likewise, when we 
think of Buddhism in terms of its iconography, in terms of its art, in terms of its architecture. When we travel to Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka or Tibet or Mongolia or China or Japan, Korea, again, most of the um, artifacts, the images, the structures that we will see will likewise be of styles or of forms or of materials that again uh, do not go back, uh, will rarely go back beyond about the 10th century AD. Now what I'm going to try to do in this series of, um, of presentations is to somehow try and dismantle all of that, to deconstruct Buddhism politely and respectfully. I'm not in the business of demolishing things, but I'm curious to know on what foundations, on what bases, these different traditions are founded. That we know that um, historically Buddhism begins with the person we know as Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in North India. Nowadays the dating is roughly 480 BC to 400 BC, which is slightly nearer our time than. Uh, traditionally Buddhists have agreed on that dating, making him in fact an exact contemporary with Socrates. That's the world, the thought world in a sense that he, that he uh, lived in. And we can actually know quite a lot about that world. Often the image of the Buddha, take for example the the tanka that I'm looking at right in front of me or right behind you, or the imagery here um, suggests a, a figure who somehow stands independently or outside of history. The actual human person has in some respects been forgotten and on the basis of that human person in the same way that on the basis of uh, the textual tradition, superstructures have been erected. In this case, the superstructural image of a rather weird-looking being with um, a big knot on top of his head, which we are now so familiar with, we don't think it remotely strange. This is not some sort of pre-Rasta headgear. <coughs> this is actually meant to be a fleshly lump a, a protrusion of flesh called the Ushnisha. In other words, the, the representation of the Buddha has departed from the historical person in similar ways to which the structure of Buddhism in its doctrines, in its manifestations, in its traditions has departed from what we find at the earliest stratum, the earliest layer of uh, the canonical tradition. So in dismantling and deconstructing these uh, superstructures, these edifices that have grown up, I want 
piece by piece to remove some of these um, later elements without judging them to be true or false. That's another question. And slowly, by doing this, trying to recover something that might be more uh, uh, representative of uh, what this person, Siddhartha Gautama, may actually have said, and in particular, what it was in that teaching that was so distinctive that people chose to remember it and to pass it on through generations of men and women to the present day in such a, a manner. In other words, the teachings of the Buddha continue to interest us. In, unlike, for example, the teachings of the ancient Egyptian religions. I doubt we could run a course on the, um, uh, the rituals concerning Ra and Horus. I don't think we'd get many takers. The difference with what the Buddha taught is that it somehow transcended the specific concerns of people living in his time and place and spoke to something common within the human condition. We can say the same about Christianity, we can say the same also about Islam, which, which is what characterizes these three movements of human thought and practice as world religions. They go beyond um, addressing what was a problem in 5th century BC India or 1st century AD Palestine or 7th century uh, Arabia and somehow address something which concerns us just as urgently today as it did then. Now one of the um, great strengths of Buddhism is that it has been able throughout its history <clears throat> to continually reinvent itself. Each time it goes into a, a new culture, each time it enters into another historical epoch, then it has this sufficient flexibility to adapt itself to the needs of those times and those places. So Tibetan Buddhism carries with it something distinctive to the concerns of the Tibetan people from the 7th century up until today, just as Japanese Buddhism addresses itself to the concerns of the Japanese. Of course, the, there is in all of these traditions ideas and teachings that are nothing to do with Tibet or Japan but are common uh, human uh, concerns. But nonetheless, the forms that the tradition has assumed are distinctively Tibetan, Chinese, Korean, Japanese. So if the Dhamma or the teachings of the Buddha um, are to uh, address and speak to the concerns of, of modernity, and I'm going, to re I'm going to avoid using the word the West, 
because whether I th we like it or not, I think we're, we have entered now a far more globalized situation. And we'll find today people in Japan or in Bangkok who are asking the same kinds of questions about the Dhamma as we are, that perhaps have the same kind of um, uh, struggles to accept ideas that seem to be part of ancient Indian cosmology, but are very difficult perhaps for modern people, East or West, to fully buy into today. By that, of course, I refer to doctrines such as uh, reincarnation and rebirth, doctrines about there being multiple realms of existence, and so forth and so on. We can't rule these things out, and I don't intend to, but they fit somewhat uncomfortably and with difficulty to the sort of worldview that most of us are brought up with, a worldview informed by the natural sciences in particular, in which such ideas uh, are increasingly difficult to um, harmonize with so much other uh, understanding we have of how the world has come to be and how the human being has evolved within it. So I'm going to propose that we are perhaps at a period um, in our human encounter with the teachings of the Buddha where we need to recognize that most of the forms of Buddhism that we are familiar with um, are in some respect provisional or let's say they are culturally specific to Tibet, to China or whatever and it might be a useful exercise to put as much of that as we can to one side and to return as best we can to um, the, the foundation on which these traditions arose. There's something archaeological about this. In recent years, in fact some of you have accompanied me on these trips, I've spent a lot of time going to the places in India, uh, in North India, where the Buddha lived and taught. And most of these sites are today archaeological digs. That what has been going on for the last 150 or so years in archaeological work in India has been to literally dig beneath the surface of the earth to recover at a level about eight feet now below the level of the Gangetic uh, plane, materials, artifacts which come from the time of the Buddha himself. Very little is found. Very little. And I think that's perhaps a, a useful metaphor for, our, for the kind of exercise I'm going to pursue this week, that when, even when we dig into the Pali Canon, which is the oldest body of materials that we have, we'll find that there, even within those teachings, there are many different layers of antiquity. Some of the teachings in the Pali Canon are 
reflecting the world view of the Buddha's time, but are not ideas that are distinctively his own. I mean, again, a good example is the doctrine of rebirth or reincarnation, the cosmology that the Buddha seems to have taken on board. Anything that we could just as well find in Jainism or in the Upanishads, that we can respectfully put to one side as not distinctively and originally the Buddha's teaching. So the materials I'll be exploring will be those that we find in the Pali texts, but I'll be looking at them from uh, an historical and a critical point of view on the one hand, but also, since I'm not particularly interested in arriving at a quasi-objective answer to my questions, I consider myself to be a practitioner of these ideas. In other words, I am subjectively concerned with what these texts say. The, the Pali Canon is not for me just uh, an object of detached interest, like, you know, parasitology. The, 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 the difference is that these, uh, uh, the, the voice of the Buddha that comes through these texts, often in a garbled form, nonetheless speaks to my condition today. And, I, and I'm interested in these teachings, in these practices, because I've found that over the last three or four decades, they have had a profound impact on how I understand myself as a human being and what kind of uh, world I would seek to, to work towards creating here and now. In other words, I'm not um, cutting myself off or separating myself from these ideas as though they are just cold, impersonal facts, but they mean something to me in a deeply subjective way. And this is the reason why I far prefer to explore these ideas in the context of a meditation retreat rather than in the context of a, a university classroom. For me, these ideas only have value if they can effect a certain healing of our own souls, our own minds, our own experience. And so I've always studied Buddhism in the context of a lived and living practice of its values, its ideas, meditations, its ethical precepts, and so on. And I suspect that those of you who have chosen to come here have a similar kind of concern, uh, which is not that of a disinterested scholar. It might sound at times, in some of the things that I say, that I'm stepping back and looking at it from a scholarly point of view, but that's merely as a strategy to help pick apart what is essential from what is perhaps peripheral 
in some of these teachings. So that is enough by way of preamble. I'm going to um, start with a passage from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, um, which is, uh, translates as the connected discourses of the Buddha. And it again, like the image I used yesterday evening of the raft, concerns a metaphor. Um, it seems to me that one of the um, elements of the Buddha's genius was his use of metaphor. And the same, of course, is true of the teachings of Jesus. Um, recently, um, Richard Gombrich, who's one of the great Pali scholars of our time, uh, he's published a book called What the Buddha Thought, which is, of course, a riff on what the Buddha taught. He argues that one of the uh, uh, aspects of the Buddha's teaching that singles him out as an original and as a very powerful teacher is the way he uses metaphor. Whereas later Buddhist doctrine becomes increasingly less and less metaphorical and more and more descriptive, more and more abstract, somewhat more dry. Whereas the Buddha will seize on an image, like we saw last night, the raft. Now, to everyone in India at that time would have known about rafts. But it takes a certain act of the imagination to recognize that everyday object and then transform it imaginatively into a metaphor for what one is doing in one's practice. It's very surprising. And the fact that it is so well known, the metaphor of the raft, is precisely because um, it sticks in the mind. It's far more effective in communicating the idea, namely that one shouldn't be attached to the teaching but one should use it as a means to an end, which is not a very mem memorable phrase, very abstract, means and ends, attachment, non-attachment. But the image of a raft which you cobble together from bits and pieces of stuff and you, as he says here, you, 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 you support it by the raft, making an effort with my hands and feet. Very earthy. You can immediately, a, a, a picture springs to mind of a person on a rather makeshift vessel propelling him or herself with their hands and their feet. I think it takes a certain level of genius to come up with that kind of image, which is both immediate, concrete, something in our everyday lives, and yet is now transformed into a very rich image of how we actually practice the Dharma. So I'm going to read a passage in which, likewise, we find this... Uh, a genius of metaphor exhibited in the Buddha's teaching. Um, 
just as another little aside. Um, in terms of looking for what is original and authentic in the early teachings, I think that, in, in agreement here with Gombrich, that these, met, these core metaphors are quite likely to go back to a very early time, possibly to that of the Buddha himself, because they'd be so difficult to invent later. Suppose monks, a man wandering through a forest, would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and he would see an ancient city. It should, do you have it on your handout? You should. It should be the first text. He would follow it and he would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then that man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road travelled upon by people in the past. I followed it and saw an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city. And, sometimes and sometime later, that city would become successful and prosperous, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road, travelled by the Buddhas or the fully awakened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path, appropriate seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, making effort, sorry, working, making effort, practicing mindfulness, and practicing concentration. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known aging and death, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. In other words, the Four Noble Truths. In some ways, I think there's, the, 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 the metaphor kind of trails off at the end. Uh, there's an emphasis on the path, but when it comes to what the city stands for, the text doesn't say, likewise, because I found the ancient city, and what is that? It is this, these four noble truths. It kind of trails away. Now, for many years, I was familiar with this metaphor, but I'd only really been aware that it was the metaphor of the path. That, I, that the Buddha compares himself to someone who's gone into a forest and found an ancient path, and the ancient path is the Eightfold Path followed by the Buddhas of the Old. That is well known, or at least I had known about that for some time. It was only when I looked it up 
in the canon to try to find the actual source text for that metaphor that in fact the metaphor is not primarily about the path the metaphor is primarily about the city the city now what the Buddha is um, suggesting therefore is that the path he teaches the Eightfold Path which normally is defined as the Noble Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering in other words to Nirvana to the um, ending of rebirth of taking birth and being caught up in aging and sickness and death rather than that we have a very different picture that the Eightfold Path leads to something equivalent to a city and again the, the way he describes the city is as a, a place that becomes successful and prosperous well populated filled with people attained to growth and expansion now that's not the sort of image you would expect someone to use for nirvana nirvana is very much about the uh, the transcending of what causes suffering and pain and ultimately leading to the end of repeated existence or sangsara here we find something that somehow conflicts with that expectation we also find that the Buddha compares the the city to the Four Noble Truths. Now, this I feel we have to think about. What does that mean? In what way are the Four Noble Truths similar to the construction of a city? It seems that the Buddha thinks of these Four Truths as a sort of template, a kind of a framework for a new kind of, of civitas or civic life. And of course the word civitas, which is the Latin for city, is the basis of our concept of civilization. The Buddha seems to see the Four Truths as the framework of a renewed civilization. Now for many of us we've grown up in modern cities and have become perhaps rather too conscious of the the shadow side of the city. We may feel that having grown up in a place like New York Los Angeles that the city is not for us a very inspiring metaphor it's often a metaphor for what's gone wrong with human society we think of the city as being a place where we've been cut off from nature from the natural world we've become alienated as we would say the city is somehow um, an imposition on the landscape 
the city uh, is a place that very often suffers from pollution and crime and uh, broken down communities in inner city areas and so forth and so on. We've become so um, disillusioned with the city and the metaphor of the city that we seek perhaps to leave the city, to return to a more simple, more rural existence and as such perhaps have quite a romantic, um, perhaps a very deep, visceral longing for the countryside, for nature, for reconnecting with the soil. And we also see the city as the uh, location for industry uh, with the, 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 this, this, the, this uh, uh, systems of production that seem to exploit nature, that drive consumerism and capitalism. And so it's very difficult, I think, for, for many of us now uh, to conceive of the city as a positive metaphor. But things were very different at the Buddha's time. For the Buddha was born at a, at a period in Indian history when a certain form of, of social organization and, and governance was uh, breaking down and a new one was emerging. It's important, I feel, in order to understand what the Buddha is saying, to locate his teaching in the context of his time and place. The Buddha is not speaking as an ahistorical figure, whereas often the picture we have, and it's reinforced by these beautiful images, is the Buddha is really not tied to any time and place. He's saying something that transcends any particular historic situation. At some level, that's true. And that's what makes his teaching so universally appealing. But at the same time, he's not, he, he, he is a human being, like the rest of us, who's living in a particular situation. And his teaching inevitably, therefore, reflects something about that situation. That may turn out not to be specifically relevant to us. But at times, I think, it does enable us to locate his teaching, let's say of the four truths, as a way of seeing what civilization can bring. That he sees his teaching in this metaphor, not as a purely spiritual or religious practice that goes on, let's say, in the privacy of our own thinking or of or our own minds, but rather he sees his teaching as something that could renew a civilization. It's also striking that his, um, his main bases, his main centers, were not situated in the countryside, but were situated on the edge of the uh, largest conurbations of his period. Much smaller than our cities, but cities nonetheless. And this is both because this uh, such proximity to urban centers gave him 
access to wealth, in other words, to have a center with many dozens, maybe even hundreds of monks and nuns, you can't be supported purely by a number of villages. You need concentrations of wealth. You need concentrations of wealth in order to build the very structures that he spent most of his life in, in the Jetta's Grove, in the Bamboo Grove, which were quite elaborate, by the end of his life, quite elaborate um, sets of buildings and resources and uh, hospitals and lecture halls and bathhouses and all kinds of things. At the same time, these um, cities represent a, a shift in the economic foundations of his world. Uh, he no longer lived in a world where most people were uh, working in a kind of subsistence economy, in other words, in a rural economy where the whole you know, struggle for life was to survive to the next year, bound up with the, with the planting and the harvesting and the production of crops. But at the Buddha's time, or shortly before the Buddha's time, the Gangetic Basin had become sufficiently prosperous uh, in its agrarian economy to generate a surplus, a surplus of wealth. In other words, people had more than they needed, which enabled the beginnings of trade and commerce, um, which enabled the uh, formation of a kind of merchant class and the concentrations of wealth in the hands of traders. Uh, the Buddha's main center, which is called the Jetta's Grove, and often it's subtitled Anattapindaka's Garden. Anattapindaka was the, the Warren Buffett of his day. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was in a very wealthy banker, a speculator probably, who had amassed a large amount of surplus wealth in coins, in, in liquid, in cash. So the Buddha's followers were very often these people who were no longer working on the land, had moved to cities and were traders, or else they were military people, they were rulers, because the surplus wealth also provided um, the possibility of creating standing armies in other words, employing men to serve in a military or in a policing function and not have to work in the fields to do productive labor. It's the same wealth, of course, that enabled another uh, swathe of society, men and women, to drop out of rural life or even urban life and pursue a life of the mind. Again, we like to think of you know, the, the monks of the Buddha's time wandering through India begging alms, but you can only beg alms if there is a surplus of production. In a subsistence economy, they don't have, people generally would not have much left over to give to these you know, these shaven-headed people wearing robes and carrying bowls uh, to support them. 
The word bhikkhu, or bhikkhuni, which we usually translate as monk or nun, which is slightly misleading, in fact means beggar. The uh, Ajahn Suchito, one of the monks in the forest tradition in England, uh, suggests it might be translated as virtuous bums. <laughs> in other words, the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis were dropouts who had renounced their productive work in the society or the raising of families and had dedicated themselves to the quest for, for truth, for understanding, for liberation, for enlightenment. And there would seem to be many, many of such people at the Buddha's time. Now, none of this would have been possible without the emergence of the city and the kind of economy that it generated, the kind of surplus wealth that became available. And a city, of course, enables high concentrations of human beings um, in such a way that work and labor can become more and more diversified and divided, People can specialize in particular areas, can do research, can develop technologies, and also can develop uh, things like schools, universities, places where we can study and educate ourselves and give rise to what we call culture, whether that be an artistic culture or a philosophical culture. None of this is possible in a purely rural environment. So we have to see, we have to turn back the clock, forget about the horrors of, you know, inner city degradation and poverty and so forth and so on, and go back to a period before any of those problems had arisen and see how for the Buddha, the image of the city is an image of of human liberation, of greater potential in what a human being can achieve, and uh, basically the emergence of a far more uh, cultured form of civilized life. So the four truths here, the four noble truths, which we're going to look at in some detail uh, as we proceed this week, I want to emphasize very much in terms of the question, in what way are the Four Noble Truths the framework for a civilization or a culture, rather than a framework for achieving spiritual liberation? Spiritual liberation might be part of the process, in fact I think it is, but it's not the end. The end of the process, in a way, is um, the engagement with a set of principles and practices and ideas that is ongoing. Again, if we just pick this apart, we'll come back to this point. The Buddha presents the image of a path that he discovers in the forest that leads to a city. He compares the path to the Eightfold Path. He compares the city to the Four Noble Truths. But what is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths? It is the Eightfold Path. And where does the Eightfold Path lead? 
in this metaphor to the Four Noble Truths. And what is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths? The Eightfold Path, which leads, and you can see where I'm going. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> in fact, what seems to be described here um, is, in, is a process rather than the achievement of some kind of final state like nirvana or enlightenment. What is being described is an ongoing process, something like a feedback loop, perhaps, in which the path brings us to a template of values and practices and ideas which culminate in the entering of the path itself, which leads to a deeper, hopefully, engagement with these same principles, which, leads, which culminates in a deepening of our sense of that path and so on. And I feel that this is very distinctive of the Buddha's teaching quite consistently throughout these early texts that the Buddha's concerned with an engagement with life, another way of responding to the conditions of life, particularly that of dukkha, of suffering. How do we live with suffering, with dukkha, with imperfection, with impermanence, with breakdown, with change, with sickness, with aging? In other words, the human condition. How can we respond to that in a way that comes from our, our deepest human potential as a loving, compassionate, wise being in such a way that another kind of civilization might be possible. But just to, to bring this to a conclusion, as I was speaking and as I was exploring this metaphor, of the, of, of the ancient path in the forest leading to the ruins of the ancient city. What ran through your mind? How did you picture that? I suspect for most of us, we thought Machu Picchu, ancient in, uh, Mayan temples in the jungle of Central America, or something along those lines, something that you knew about either from first-hand experience or from what you have read about in National Geographic or in some book. It's a common experience, a bit like the raft. We all know what a raft is. We don't have to say, what's a raft? We all know what a raft is. And we all know what is an ancient path under the undergrowth leading to an ancient ruin somewhere. In order for the metaphor to have effect, it implies that the audience is familiar either directly or through hearsay or through a me memory of the culture that there are ancient pathways leading to the ruins of ancient cities and forests. You agree? I hope. I hope you do. Otherwise, the rest of what I say will fall flat. <laughs> but this means we have a problem. Because the Buddha was speaking in the northern Gangetic Plain. And at his time, there were no ruins of ancient cities in the forests. Didn't exist. Modern archaeology bears that out very clearly. 
that no one in the Buddha's audience could have, would have had the experience within their particular surrounding in North India of going into a forest and finding a ruined uh, roadway leading to the ruins of an ancient city. Because the very first cities in North India had only just started being built. More than that, the materials used for the construction of these cities were non-durable. The cities or the towns that were being built at the Buddha's time were made of, of wood, um, of what is called wattle and daub, in other words, a sort of wood lattice or a bamboo lattice plastered with mud, with thatched roofs, maybe a few tiles in some of the wealthier houses. They would not have used uh, stone, large stone constructions in the northern Gangetic Plain, because as an alluvial plain, in other words, just a huge expanse of solid mud, basically, there was no access to quarries and stone. Archaeological excavations reveal very, very little at the Buddha's time because there were no durable materials. The technology of uh, kiln-fired brick um, had been lost, was not used at the Buddha's time. The best would have been a kind of adobe-type uh, sun-baked brick, which in India doesn't last very long because of the monsoon. Once a year, you get three months of torrential rain, and none of these materials will last for very, very long in such a, an environment. So, why would the Buddha use a metaphor of something that people would have had no direct experience of? This raises a question. Okay, well, if they didn't have access to such experiences in their immediate surrounding in northern India, where might they have had or come across such things? Well, there's a... Sorry? Well, I, Greece is a little too far afield. Um, well, Alexander didn't arrive in India until after the Buddha's death. Um, but you're getting close. It would have been to the west. In, and I think the, I mean, it's quite clear archaeologically that there would have been substantial ruins of ancient cities existing in the Indus Valley at the time of the Buddha, at the time the Buddha lived. The Indus, there was a whole civilization that pre-existed the Gangetic civilization that it was beginning to emerge at the Buddha's time. But it existed to the west in what is now Pakistan, about 800 miles west of where the Buddha was teaching, in the Indus Valley. And there was a, an in, a, a huge urban civilization, very complex, which utilized for its buildings kiln-fired brick. It also had writing. There would have been inscriptions on these bricks and on these tiles. There were complex uh, drainage systems, 
uh, elaborate forms of architecture, street planning, everything. In fact, you can go today and you can visit, if you want to go to Pakistan, you, <laughs> you can visit Mo Mohendaro, Harappa, and numerous sites um, in the Indus Valley that date back to something, in some cases, about 2,000 years before the Buddha. There were these vast remains. It is still disputed by scholars as to why this civilization collapsed. It's likely, in fact, now to be thought to be due to the, the, re, the, the shifting of river courses, particularly a river called the Saraswati, which shifted course, thereby depriving the civilization of water. It might also have been due to the invasions of the Aryan people who came from the northwest, who perhaps laid waste to these cities. A recent theory that a friend, Andy Alensky, mentioned to me recently is that there might have been a massive tsunami that came up the Indus Valley and destroyed it, a triggered by a meteor or asteroid impact in the Indian Ocean. We don't know. But the point is, by the Buddha's time, these places were deserted. That culture had collapsed, that civilization had collapsed, but it does seem to have been remembered, both in the memory of the Aryan peoples who would have come through this area about a thousand years before the Buddha, but more probably because many people of the Buddha's inner circle had actually been to this area to study in a place called Taxila. You may have heard of it. Takasila in Pali. Taxila was the greatest center of learning in the region at the Buddha's time. We know that the Buddha's main patron, Pasenadi, studied in Taxila. That Bandula, who was another contemporary of the Buddha, who was the head of the Kosalan army, he studied in Taxila. Angulimala, who we've probably heard of, the guy who cut off people's thumbs, usually thought of as a sort of proto-serial killer. He was actually more likely a black magician training in the dark arts in Taxila. Jivaka, the doctor of King Bimbisara and the Magadan court, studied medicine in Taxila. Mahali, a chief Lichavi prince of Vesali, likewise a supporter of the Buddha, studied in Taxila. People traveled far more widely in those times than we perhaps give them credit for. We know, for example, around the time of the Buddha's birth, there were soldiers from the area around Taxila in Gandhara who were fighting as part of the Persian army at the Battle of Thermopylae, which is 150 miles northwest of Athens. That's your Greek thing. So the, the movement of peoples through these areas was significant. It was much slower, obviously, than in our time, but that doesn't mean that there was not an enormous traffic of both trade and ideas and stories. 
Kapalavatu, where the Buddha was born and grew up, was linked by what's called the North Road, that was the main conduit of trade between Magadha, south of the Ganges, through Vaishali, Kusinara, Kapalavastu, Shravasti, and finally, its terminus in the northwest, Taxila. There were Greek communities already pre-Alexandrian living around Taxila. Taxila was part of the Persian Empire, the easternmost part of the Persian Empire. It was the great power of the day, equivalent to America um, in our world. A place, therefore, that would have attracted young men of ambition, who sought learning, who sought status. They would be sent by their families to study in Taxila, much in the same way as people in India today will be sent to Harvard or Oxford. It was the great cultural center of the day. And anyone who had been there would very likely have seen these ruins and have told about them. I suspect it's possible even the Buddha himself might have been out there as a young man. So we have to try to think now of the Buddha in his relatively undeveloped mud and wattle and daub buildings, sun-baked bricks, thatched roofs, uh, mud rampart sort of cities that were emerging in North India, and being aware of this um, enormous civilization that pre-existed them, that is now in ruins. And much in the same way as here in the United States, the way you would feel about going to see the pyramids or going to some of the places like Chaco Canyon or these Anastasi, is it? Anastasi remains in New Mexico and in Colorado and elsewhere. There's something about that experience, and I'm sure most of us have had it, of going to a place that used to be a thriving city or dwelling. There's something very powerful about those experiences or going to Machu Picchu or to Mexico and seeing similar things. A sense of something great and wonderful that is now abandoned and deserted. A sense both that human possibilities had been realized in these places and then these places had been abandoned. It's something I think that resonates with us as humans, both as a sense of what we can achieve and also a reminder that whatever we do achieve will be subject to impermanence and decay and abandonment. So if this theory of mine is, is correct, and if this text does in fact go back as early to the Buddha himself, then the Buddha is perhaps seeing his, his whole teaching um, as one which is inspired by the notion of renovating a city. In other words, um, a, building something that will cause such places as those ruins in the Indus Valley to come to life again. So the Buddha's vision of the Eightfold Path, the Four Truths, which is really, I think, at the very core 
of what he taught, he sees as the, uh, a way to the creating another kind of life on earth. I think for us, of course, we wouldn't see this in terms of trying to build more cities. But we would, I think, perhaps, or we could imagine that the Buddha's Dhamma might enable us or give us the, 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 the foundations, the ideological and the spiritual foundations for another way of living on this earth together. That, I think, is the, is, 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 is the, is the lesson we might draw. In other words, to see the Dharma from the very outset as a form of uh, cooperation, a form of personal and communal transformation that addresses the primary issue of suffering in this world now. And that, I feel, is an important way to start rethinking the Dharma from the ground up. And that's where I'm going to stop today. Um, I just have a little announcement to make. The, the, you'll see on the, as you go out on the left, there's a notice board. With Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.